Well, uh, before I begin, I just want to give a little bit of a, um, a precursor uh, to what we're going to talk about today. Um, I've done a lot of reading and a lot of research to prepare for today's content. I do a lot of reading and a lot of research in general, but uh, I, I take what I do on Sundays very, very, very seriously. And I think I've read dozens and dozens of articles just for today and uh, multiple books just in preparation for today over the past few weeks. Um, that said, uh, a couple of resources that I've found in particularly uh, most helpful, one being the work of Preston Sprinkle and the other of James Emery White. And if you want to read more on what I'm talking about today, I can make recommendation, recommendations on books and articles uh, that you can spend a little time and read on your own. Uh, also, I've been around enough to know uh, when I talk about things like this, at the end of today's message, some of you will wish I would have said more. Uh, some of you will wish I would have said less. Uh, at times you may agree with me and at times you may disagree with me, uh, but I just want you to know that uh, what you already know, uh, I'm not perfect, but I've done my best uh, to be true to what we've been talking about in the first couple of weeks of this series. Uh, so that's what I'm going to try to model and that's what I'm going to try to do today. So if you're ready at all of our campuses, say I am. All right, I wanna begin by telling you the story of Leslie. Uh, Preston Sprinkle in his book, Embodied, he, he tells this story and I found it, I found it so powerful and so gripping. Uh, Leslie was born a female, uh, but from four years old, she experienced life uh, as a boy. Uh, from the earliest of age, she felt like a boy, uh, she thought like a boy, and she played like a boy. Uh, but also from the earliest of age that she could remember, uh, Leslie also loved Jesus. Uh, and she loved Jesus from as young as what she could remember uh, in her mind. Uh, she loved going to church. Uh, she loved Sunday school. And, and faith was a central part of her life. Uh, but as Leslie grew older, she found it harder and harder uh, to fit in. Uh, she felt distant from the other girls. Uh, their interests were not her interest, um, uh, they began to grow wider and wider and wider in the division between her and all the other girls uh, because they were talking about things that she wasn't talking about. They were worried about things that she wasn't worried about. And as much as she tried, she could not relate to the other girls and their emerging womanhood. They were putting on makeup, they were fixing their hair, they were talking about boys, and none of that had any interest for Leslie. Uh, she was wrestling with her uh, gender identity, and like many people, people who do that, uh, she was wrestling alone. And over time, uh, she spiraled into a dark, deep depression, and with the depression came isolation. And whenever there's isolation and whenever there's depression, suicidal thoughts often quickly followed. Um, Leslie, she felt like her life was a charade. She felt like she was pretending. She felt like she was just playing a character that she wasn't really uh, true to. And as she felt like her life was a charade, uh, her depression grew worse and worse. And then one day, she summoned up the courage to go talk to her pastor. And she met with her pastor, and she told her pastor of her gender dysphoria, of how she felt and how many years she had felt that way. And at the end of her talking to her pastor, he stood up and he invited her to follow him. And then she followed him to the doors and then he showed her the doors and he told her never to come back. And she didn't step back into a church for 18 years. And in those 18 years, she hated Christians, as you can imagine, and especially she hated Christian pastors even more. She had taken a risk to start a conversation. She had shared her greatest struggle all the while trying to follow Jesus. Um, 
But when she opened up the door and had the conversation, she was met by a Christian who had all conviction and no compassion, all truth and no grace. She was told that day by her pastor that the church had no place for people like her. And that day, she believed him. That's the story of Leslie. Then there's the story of Alan. Alan was a pastor's son. And he couldn't wait to graduate high school because he knew that as soon as he graduated high school, not only was he leaving home, but he was leaving the church. Uh, from the earliest of age that Alan could remember, he had an unchosen desire to dress, act, and behave like a woman. Um, all during his struggle, um, he felt alone. He struggled alone. He had no one to talk to, had no one to guide him. Uh, he knew how his dad, his pastor, felt. He knew how his church felt. Uh, he knew what their attitudes were towards the LGBTQ community. And those attitudes were not very good. Uh, and everything that Alan knew about his dad and everything that Alan knew about the church that he called his church, it made him feel more isolated and it made him feel more ashamed. Uh, he grew more and more tired of what he thought was Christian hypocrisy because he kept hearing church people talk about how they were a people of grace, uh, but they wouldn't really show grace to certain groups of people who struggled with certain sins. And, and the hypocrisy, it turned him off. And after high school, Alan did exactly what he planned to do. He left the church. And not only did he leave the church, but he left faith. Now, as I said, we're in part three of this series that we have titled, Where We Stand. And for the past couple of weeks, uh, we've been talking about how following Jesus requires both grace and truth, compassion and convic conviction, because Jesus was all grace, all truth, all the time. Jesus, the one that we follow, he never forfeited his compassion for the sake of his conviction. And he never forfeited his conviction for the sake of his compassion. Now, doing it like Jesus, it isn't easy to do. It's difficult. The easy way for you and the easy way for me and the easy way for us and the easy way for churches all across America is unchecked compassion that just decides we're gonna condone everybody. No matter what those choices are, no matter what the behavior is, we're just gonna go with unchecked compassion and just condone everybody. That's easy to do. Uh, it's also easy to have unchecked conviction, which just decides to condemn everybody that you disagree with or people who are making choices that you don't like, don't agree with, don't understand or can't relate to. But Jesus's way, Jesus's way is uniquely more difficult it is a way of unconditional grace and it is a way of uncompromised truth. And so with that said, today, as many of you already know, we're gonna talk about gender. And, and some people would say, well, why, why are we talking about this? Isn't there really important things that we could talk about other than this? And, and I think I will just start here. This is really important. And it's really important because the culture is zeroed in on it and families are having to deal with it, and students are being confronted with it. And the volume of the conversation has gotten so loud, and the emotions around this conversation has gotten so high, it really begs us to take some time to talk about it. Now, when we talk about gender, um, it's a multi-layered conversation. It's cultural, it's social, it's political, it's relational, it's theological. There's a lot of layers to this onion. And, and to just stereotype the two main camps, which typically are the loudest, you've got the fundamentalists who want to condemn everybody in the discussion, and you've got the liberals who want to condone everybody in the discussion. I know that there are other people, but those are the loudest. The extremes are always the loudest. 
But this conversation, a conversation about gender, related to gender, centered around the subject, it really is a conversation that requires both grace and truth, compassion and conviction. The easy thing for me today would be just go all grace or go all truth, to go all compassion or to go all con conviction. That, that would be the easy thing. Uh, but we're gonna do our best to do both, compassion with conviction and grace with truth, just the way that we think Jesus models for us. So let me just start here and let me say this. If, if you happen to be here at one of our campuses, whether in London or Williamsburg or Middlesbrough or Somerset, and if you're here in one of our churches and you struggle with gender identity, um, which is about 0.5% of the population, the best that experts can currently tell, uh, I want you to know you are not my primary audience today. But let me say this to you in the very beginning. God loves you, I love you, our church loves you uh, because you matter to God and you matter to us. Uh, the audience that I am speaking to is primarily Jesus followers who, who don't struggle uh, with gender in their own personal lives. Uh, I, I wanna talk to Jesus followers uh, really that are in two camps that I mentioned a moment ago. Those of you who lean towards all grace, uh, so much so that you have unchecked compassion. You empathize with people so much and so deeply. It's just so easy for you to condone because it's almost painful to do anything but condone. Uh, and then I wanna talk to those of us who are Jesus followers who lean towards unchecked conviction and, and we're just all about truth and we find it easy to just condemn the choices of people that we don't understand or that we can't relate to. That's really the two camps of Jesus followers that I wanna primarily speak to. And today, as I talk about this, I wanna do it as faithfully and as graciously as I know how to do. And I'll tell you ahead of time, I won't do it perfectly, uh, but I wanna do my best. Uh, but before we dive into it, I, I wanna take a moment and just remind us all of some things so we can gather some common ground, no matter what camp we find ourselves in. And, and here's where I want us to start. Behind every issue is a person with a story. It's not your story, maybe not my story. Uh, the Quakers, they would teach that an enemy is just someone whose story we haven't heard yet. Uh, behind every issue, whatever the issue is, there's a person with a story. Behind every issue, there is a person and every person has a story. I, I want us to remember that. I, I want us to remember that I love you isn't a statement of approval. I love you isn't a statement of approval. We all kind of know that, but sometimes we forget it when we talk about emotionally charged things. I disagree with you isn't synonymous with hate. It isn't a statement of hate. I disagree with you, it isn't a statement of hate. That's something we need to hold on to. Accepting sinners isn't synonymous with affirming sin. That's really important for Christians in the 21st century West to keep in mind. And refusing to condemn a sinner isn't synonymous with condoning their sin. These are important things to have as a framework as we talk about what we're gonna talk about for the next few minutes. Now, last week I talked about truth and how truth is inextricably connected to God. And because it's connected to God, truth is absolute, it's universal, it's eternal. I don't get any vote in it. What's true is true and what's not isn't. Jesus said that the truth is what convicts us when we're wrong. Even when our wrong, we desperately want to be right. He says that's what the truth does, it convicts us. It's a light that calls us out of darkness, showing us a better way to live. And it's a truth, it's a power that sets us free. The truth is a power that sets us free from lies that we hold on to, um, that hold us back. Because every sin behind that sin, there is a lie. 
And when it comes to truth, we're to speak it in love. We're to speak it in order to build up, not tear down. And we're to speak the truth in order to restore, not merely correct, correct someone. That's how we handle the truth. And we handle the truth that way because we believe that when we fall short of God's truth, when other people fall short of God's truth, that we have the capacity to fall into God's grace, even when we fall short of God's truth. So what does that mean for us? It means that we refuse to lower the standard, water down the truth, or compromise the truth of God's standard. Yet we refuse to withhold grace or to show grace or speak grace to those who fall short of God's standard of truth. And that brings us all the way back to what I said we're gonna talk about today, which is gender. And what seems to me to be at the foundation of this conversation, at the foundation of this conversation is something that is centrally important to the human experience. And it's self-identity. Identity is a matter of how we define ourselves. It's, it's a matter of how we label ourselves or see ourselves. And, and how we label ourselves, define ourselves, see ourselves, it in turn shapes how we see the world. It shapes how we experience the world and how we ultimately think and how we feel and what we ultimately choose to do or not do. My self-identity, your self-identity, it, it creates a perceived reality for us which may or may not be in alignment with actual reality. Uh, my self-identity, it goes everywhere I go. Uh, it has a voice, it speaks to me, it advises me, it influences me. It affects me on every level of my being. Self-identity is super important to the human experience. And behind self-identity is one of the most important questions that you'll ask, that I'll ever ask, and that any of us will ever attempt to answer. And this goes from their children, this goes for moms and dads, this goes for all of us. This is one of the most important questions we will ever ask or answer. And it's the question of who am I? Who am I? Is it what I do? Is that who I am? How much I have or how little I have, is that who I am? What others say about me, is that who I am? Who I'm attracted to, who I'm not attracted to, is that who I am? My personality, my experiences, is that who I am? And the bigger question behind who am I is this right here. Who gets the right to define who I am as a human being? Who gets the right to define who I am as a human being? And in a world of identity politics that is strategically designed to pit us against one another by placing us in categories and by labeling us based on our views and values, and those labels and those categories and those descriptors are endless. There's black and there's white and there's straight and gay and there's conservative and liberal, there's cisgender and transgender and whatever else it may be. Our political system is uniquely conditioned to pit us against one another, so much so that we are conditioned, without us even knowing about it in the 21st century West and especially in American politics, we are conditioned more and more to think that the people on the other side of whatever it is, the side of whatever issue you wanna talk about, that the people on the other side, that they are the enemy, they are the problem, they are the monster who needs to be destroyed. So each side, each side of the spectrum, the conservatives, the liberals, each side, they stereotype, demonize, and mischaracterize the other side until it's difficult to see the other side as human. They're dehumanized to the point that fearing them and hating them becomes easy for us to do. So as we get ready to talk about this, I just wanna be really clear. I just really wanna be clear from the very beginning. The people that are part of the LGBTQ 
community are not Christian's enemy. They're not monsters. They're people who are our neighbors. And Jesus said we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, and that we are to love our neighbors as God in Christ has loved us. There's going to be people that we rub shoulders with in life as Christians that we don't agree with. There's going to be people we don't understand. There's going to be people that we can't relate to. That's just part of life. But Christians will never meet another human being that we have the right to withhold love from. And I say all of this as an introduction because gender has become one of the most divisive and contentious subjects that's being discussed currently in our culture at this current moment. It just is. There's important questions being asked about really important things, like what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Are those the only two options? Is there any logical, rational foundation where we would believe that someone can choose their own sex or choose their own gender? Are sex and gender the same thing? Is gender binary, is it non-binary? Is it something else altogether? Can a man's soul be trapped in a woman's body? Can a woman's soul be trapped in a man's body? Is it okay for a woman to be more masculine? Is it okay for a man to be more feminine? And what about people who are intersex, who are born with both male and female organs? What about them? And does any of this stuff even matter? Uh, Preston Sprinkles, in his book on the matter, he says that the issue really boils down to one question, and I, I tend to agree with him. And here's the question. If someone experiences incongruence between their biological sex and their internal sense of self, which one determines who they are and why? In other words, who gets the say to define who I am? Is it my body or my mind? In determining who we are, who or what gets to define us? Is it our bodies or is it our minds? And usually, like I said, there's two camps, the all-compassion or the all-conviction. But, but neither one of those will do if we're going to do it like Jesus. Now, again, talking about gender, and when it comes to any discussion about gender, what it is, what it isn't, uh, and what it all means, I think as a follower of Jesus, uh, and, and following Jesus for quite a few years and doing what I do for quite a few years, I believe that any discussion on this particular subject really begins in the book of beginnings. Uh, I think it begins in the book of Genesis. And I wanna take you back to some of the most familiar verses that perhaps you've heard all the way back to Sunday school if you grew up in the church. But even if you didn't grow up in church, you've, you've heard these verses before. And I want us to take a 21st century ear to listen to this ancient literature, this ancient book, written by what most scholars believe to be Moses. And I want us to listen in and to see what there is for us to learn, what we can adopt as a framework for how to see the world with conviction and compassion. So this is, this is how the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, the Bible, this is how it begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, right out of the start gate, Genesis establishes God at the apex of all hierarchies. He is the creator that rules over creation. He's the designer that stands behind the design. He is the uncaused first cause, which serves as the explanation to all time, space, and matter. That's Genesis 1 and 1. He's spirit. He's timeless. He exists 
outside of space, time, and matter. He supersedes everything within time, space, and matter because he is responsible for all time, space, and matter. That's Genesis 1, verse 1. That's how the book begins. That's the framework that Moses presents us with from the very beginning. So he continues. He says, so... God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And God said, let the, let the land produce living creatures according to their own kind, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind, and so it was. Now, again, God's not saying how I did it. He's just telling us that he did it. And that was Moses' point. Moses is not trying to show us how God did it. He's just saying God did it. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Now, when Moses wrote these words, he wrote these words as an alternative to some of the oldest religious ideas on the earth. Those ideas which looked to some element of creation to serve as God or to embody the idea of God, some image, whether the sun or the moon or the stars, a mountain, rocks or animals, whatever it was, the oldest religions on earth would look to those parts of creation and they would deify it and it would serve as their God or in the Old Testament, it would be referred to as their idol. But Moses, Moses doesn't point us in the direction of creation in order to worship it but he points us in the direction of creation to look beyond it. And as we look beyond creation, we begin to realize that there is a creator and it is the creator that is in charge. It is the creator that is to be worshiped. Now, again, I know you've heard these verses, you know, hundreds of times, but I don't want you to miss what's happening here. Moses is establishing the hierarchy of the cosmos and the created order. And at the top of that apex is one uncreated creator God that is at the top of everything. And so as we read in the early part of Genesis, God, he has created the heavens and the earth. He's created the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets, the land and the sea, the plant kingdom, the animal kingdom. And as Moses presents us with God as the architect, the designer, the cause behind creation, he then brings us to the crown jewel of all of creation. He said, well, what's the crown jewel of all of creation? Humankind. That's you. That's me. Every person you will ever meet is the crown jewel of God's creation. Every time you look in a mirror and you see a glimpse of yourself, you are looking at the crown jewel of God's creation. Every time you see somebody on the other side of the screen as you watch the evening news, you're seeing someone who is the crown jewel of God's creation. Every time you see someone in the face, you are looking into the face of part of God's crown jewel of creation. So Moses, this is how he puts it, when he brings us to this part of the creation story, he says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. In other words, God is at the top of the hierarchy and then he creates mankind. And mankind is not to worship nature. They're not to deify elements of creation. They are to rule 
over creation. They're to be stewards of God's creation. And humans, and we'll talk more about this next week, but humans stand above the rest of creation in their value to God. They are of greater worth, greater importance than the stars or the sun or the moon, more value than the birds in the sky or the fish in the sea or the animals on the land. This is what Moses presents us to, that human value surpasses the birds It surpasses the fish. It surpasses the animals on the land. Why? Why are humans more important than animals? Why are humans more important than all the other elements of creation? Because they and they alone bear the image of God. God said, let us make man in our own image, in our own likeness. And so in this text, God's image establishes the inherent value of every single person. Not a subjective value based on who they are or what they think or what they've done, but an objective value that has been conferred upon every human being because they are image bearers of God. Now, when we understand this in Genesis 1, this has stunning implications for the Christian ethic, especially in the 21st century. We understand that God's image is on every person. And though God's image has been marred by sin, underneath the sin, underneath my sin, underneath my brokenness, underneath your sin and your brokenness is the image of God that has been placed upon you. Jesus would come in the New Testament in order to restore the perfect image of God upon us when the restoration of all things occur. But the image of God is still upon you, still upon me, still upon every person, and it establishes their worth and their dignity. So you say, well, what does this mean for us? What does it mean? It means that as a Christian, it means as a church, we should always endeavor to treat people as though they have dignity and as though they're worthy of respect because they are. Irrespective of their gender, irrespective of their race or their age or their nationality or their creed or their economic status. We believe that every single person bears the image of God and because of that, how we treat people is of great interest to God because every person, they bear his image in this world. And and here's something to think about. If God is of great and incalculable worth, and I think we would all say he is, then human beings made in his image are as well. To attack another person is to attack God through his image bearer. The New Testament is really clear about this. James 3 verse 9, the half-brother of Jesus, James, he said this. He said, with our mouth we bless God and with our mouth we curse men who are made in the image of God. And and James makes the point that you can't bless God with your words one moment and attack and curse somebody, you know, with your words the next because you're actually attacking God when you attack those who are made in the image of God. And Genesis, Moses goes out of the way here multiple times to remind us that every person is sacred. Let me just remind us all of something I hope we already know, but we may not. Churches are not sacred. They're buildings. Temples are just buildings. They're not sacred. Sites, pieces of real estate, pieces of property, they're not sacred. Books aren't sacred. People are sacred. 
because people bear the image of God. And again, we'll talk about this next week. And this is why I can't understand why Christians wouldn't want to speak up against racism, discrimination of all kinds, because we believe that anytime somebody is dealt with unjustly or unfairly, or someone's dealt with wrongly, it's an attack on one of God's image bearers. We believe that every person we meet in some way is a reflection of God, is a reminder of God, every single person. Black, white, gay, straight, transgendered, Muslim, Hindu, uh, limited, whether physically or cognitively. Every person has dignity and divine worth. And we learn it in Genesis chapter one. I love what C.S. Lewis wrote uh, in A Weight of Glory, The Weight of Glory. He said, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be as a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. He said, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. You've talked to people who are a reflection, an image of God. So God created mankind in his own image. And again, he restates the point that he's making. And then the question begins to be, what, what does it mean to bear the image of God? And a lot of people have had a lot of different ideas about it. Irenaeus, uh, Calvin, Augustine, they believed it was our consciousness, our rationality, our cognitive abilities that constituted the image of God. Karl Barth and some others, they believed that the image of God was our relational capacity to be in relationship with God and with people, to be able to be unified even in the face of diversity, like the Trinity is unified even in diversity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Others believe that the image of God points to human beings as being God's vice regents upon the earth, that we are his chief representatives among creation, that we rule over creation. And, and I partially, I believe that it's a little bit of all three. I believe the idea is so big and so massive that it, that it involves all of it. Moses doesn't tell us what he means by the image of God, because many scholars believe that his first audience knew what he was talking about when he said the image of God, because in that culture, in those days, kings and rulers would erect images and place throughout their realm in order to remind people of the rule of the king. And this was, way, this was Moses' way of saying that every human being is an image that God has placed on this planet as a reminder that he is king, that he is God, that he is good, that he is responsible for all that is, that our hearts and our minds would be pulled in his direction. Just a side note, have you ever wondered why God told them, don't make any graven images of me? later on in the law of Moses, because God had already given his image. It was humanity. There was no sense to have an idol. There was no sense to create an image or to deify part of nature or creation because God had already placed his image in the world. And so Moses goes on and he says, in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. God placed his image on both male and female, not just individually, but collectively. Together, male and female would become God's image in this world. God was not fully imaged in Adam alone. God created his helpmate, created Eve, created the female to be alongside so that God could be fully imaged through both of them. And in this sense, both men and women are sacred. Both genders, male and female, are sacred because they bear the image of God. And in their own way, they demonstrate the image of God in the world. 
And what's interesting is this, when we read through the scriptures, God is not only portrayed and described through masculine metaphors and masculine descriptors and masculine words, God's also, maybe uncomfortably, for some of you who've never thought about it before, but God is often described in feminine ways throughout the scripture. Uh, God is pictured, you know, as the masculine God who's lion, who's king, who's warrior. He's a rock. He's a strong tower. He's a father. He's fire. He's thunder. He's the rear guard. He's the protector. He's our fortress. He's aggressive. But God's also pictured as a lily, a rose, dew, a soft voice, a mother bear, like a woman who's moaning in labor, a nursing mother who has her child at her chest, that God gives the comfort of a mother to a child, that he's tender, that he's patient, that he's the mother hen that Jesus used to describe, that he's the mother hen who wants to gather the chicks in order to protect because they are loved. Jesus described in a parable a woman who had lost coins and went in search of it. And the woman in the story was a picture of God. That God all throughout the scriptures, he, he's pictured in this incredible way because to describe God, how do you describe God? How do you describe what is infinite? And the writers would reach in whatever direction they could in order to present God because God wanted to reveal himself to the world. One writer remarked that gender's hard for us to comprehend because God himself is difficult for us to comprehend. Robert Siegel, I like the way he put it. He, he put it this way. He said, masculine and feminine can be understood only in terms of each other. Basically, they are opposite and complementary qualities. They are like darkness and light. It is very hard to understand darkness except in terms of light and light except in terms of darkness. They are two extremes on a continuum. You say, well, what in the world are you talking about? It means that each person's unique. It means men and women are unique. They're equally valuable and worthy of dignity and respect. Not all men are alike. You already know this. Not all women are alike. There's great variation within the sexes. And there's even greater variation when it comes to the differences between men and women. The fact that we're created male and female in God's image only points to deeper realities of masculinity and femininity. Every woman will uniquely demonstrate her own feminine qualities. Every male will uniquely demonstrate his masculine qualities. Masculine and feminine is first seen in the body. Then it be begins to show up in our person. It begins to become part of our identity and it's lived out through our character, through our choices, through our life, through our behavior. Both men and women, this is important, both men and women reflect God and reflect something that is true about God because he has placed his image on both male and female. Jeff Johnston, he, he writes this for Focus on the Family. He said, being male or female isn't just about cultural stereotype, stereotypes. Masculine and feminine characteristics reflect something much deeper, attributes of God that resonate in the core being of our souls and personalities. So again, hear it. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. What do we see here? God is unmistakably introducing us to a binary framework for understanding sex and gender. And the implications couldn't be more clear. It means God created you. God created you with a body. You're not a soul trapped in a body. You are soul and body. Christians believe that at the end of all things, when the dead are resurrected, when those who have placed their faith in Christ are resurrected, their souls are just not resurrected, but their bodies and souls are reunited. You're just not a soul trapped in a body. You are soul 
and body. That's how we were intended to be, how we were intended to exist from the very beginning. So God created us with a body, and God created you, God created me, male or female. And the difference between male and female, it begins at the very deepest parts of our biology. Genetically, men and women were different by the presence or the absence of the Y chromosome. We have different reproductive systems that complement one another. Females have ovaries, they have a uterus, they have a vagina, they have breasts, they have vulva. Men have penises and testicles. They're very different, but they complement one another. And even in intersexed individuals, which uh, I could go into this, but it really is a separate discussion, 99.98% of those who are born intersex are still biologically male or female. Male and female, they have different endocrine systems, which affect their levels of estrogen and testosterone, which affect everything from the width of their hips to the amount of face, facial hair that they have. In Genesis, we see that we are sexually dimorphic. It's a scientific fact. It's a fact according to Genesis, and we're not presented with a third option. And it brings us, you know, to the discussion, which really kind of is where our world is, to what's called gender roles. And, and the current idea is that gender is something separate from sex. Uh, gender is more psychological, social, and cultural in its construction and, you know, in essence. Uh, gender roles describe the social, cultural aspects of what it means to be male or what it looks like to be male, what it looks like to be female. And it really has to do with the spectrum of masculine to feminine. Uh, and there's all kinds of stereotypes in that. Uh, gender stereotypes, so, you know, like those who play sports and being physically aggressive and men who don't cry and, and you know, women are easy at expressing themselves or being more sensitive and tender, uh, certain, you know, gender better at math and science, or you prefer blue over pink or jeans over dresses or rough and tumble play over soft and caring play. These stereotypes, sometimes they're connected perhaps to nature. Many times they're connected to nurture. They're generalities. They're not absolutes. Uh, men are generally taller than women, but not always. Uh, women are generally more sensitive than men, but not always. And sometimes people don't fit into gender roles or gender stereotypes or gender uh, generalities. It happens. Sometimes men are more effeminate than the majority of men. Sometimes women are more masculine than the majority of women. Sometimes the generalities of gender roles and stereotypes, they don't apply to certain individuals, but it doesn't mean that they were meant to be another biological sex. It just means that certain people don't fit into cultural, stereotypical, general gender roles. And then when you take it a step further and you talk about gender identity, it, it, this is more psychological and it's a bit more complicated. It's when one person's internal sense of self is in conflict with their biological self, that they feel one way in their psychology, but their body says something different. It's when someone wants to choose their gender regardless of their biological sex, uh, because the idea is among many in culture that gender is something that is different from sex, that those are two different things. So one can choose their own gender despite their own biological sex. And again, the question I bring us back to is if someone experiences incongruence between their biological sex and their internal sense of self, which one determines who they are and why? And a growing number of people in culture says the individual does. The individual wins all. That you get to decide who you are. You get to decide whatever you wanna be. It's all up to you because the individual wins out. Science says the biology decides. 
Scripture in Genesis 1 points us in the direction that we agree with science. Biology does. God created them male and female. The, the disagreement between the opposing viewpoints, they're simple, but, it, it, but it's profound. And, and it becomes really, really, really complicated, especially when you start talking about things like gender dysphoria, which is psychological distress that some people feel when their internal sense of who they are, it doesn't meet their biological sex. And this is a real condition. And it can begin early in childhood for some people. And experts say that the majority of people who suffer with or experience gender dysphoria, that the majority of them will grow out of it, move past it by adulthood. But not everyone does. And that's a conversation. And then you, you take it a little bit more modern and now experts are talking about rapid onset gender dysphoria, which is a cultural phenomenon as an explosion of teenagers in the West are questioning their gender in, in what seems like almost an overnight fashion. And, and it seems as though that there's a large number of teenagers in our culture that are being culturally influenced and they're being culturally influenced because they have certain risk parameters. Uh, nearly half of the teenagers who have what's referred to as rapid onset gender dysphoria, almost half of them have had some type of traumatic event you know, in their life prior to their dysphoria. 45% were already engaging in self-harm prior to their dysphoria. 7% were already diagnosed bipolar prior to their dysphoria. It's a serious condition. These are serious conditions, and it really does require the attention of a trusted professional. It really doesn't need angry Christians. This is a big deal. It's an important conversation. And as we wrap it up, I just, I just want us to be clear on the matter. Sexuality is not like a favorite color. It's not something you get to choose. It's not a preference. It's hardwired into our being. So why do you believe that? Genesis 1 teaches us that. And this is the way it was meant to be from the beginning. You say, well, what should we be reminded of? Because I am wrapping it up. What should we be reminded of? I think we should all be reminded of that those who struggle with this issue are sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, people in our families. They sit in our churches. They live in our communities. And they are made in the image of God and they have endless dignity and eternal worth. I think we should all be reminded that we shouldn't dismiss the legitimacy of anyone else's experience simply because we can't understand it or we don't relate to it. In most cases, their experience, those who struggle with their gender identity, their experience can't be chalked up to saying, hey, you're living a lie because they themselves don't feel as though they're living a lie. They feel as though they're living true to themselves. So we just can't throw out platitudes. We just can't make statements and make points at the risk of burning a bridge and creating a barrier. So where do we stand? Genesis 1 teaches us that there are two sexes, male and female, and each are made in the image of God. Sex and gender isn't a spectrum. It's not something we choose. It's something that's hardwired into us. We're a race of males or females, and it's rooted in how God made us. Gender is not a social construct. There's parts of gender roles that may be a social construct, but we are created in the image of God, male and female. And as Christians, we have a responsibility to speak against destructive ideologies. We just do. And it seems that there's a growing trauma in our culture that's attached to people trying to live out in their mind what their bodies contradict. And when we turn to Genesis 1, we find a framework for how we think about gender and sex. 
Another thing I think we learn after all we've talked about is that the person who is furthest from the grace of God is the one unwilling to extend grace to others. Meaning how can we say that we are a people who've experienced unconditional grace if we place conditions on our grace towards other people? How can we sing songs like God looked beyond my fault and he saw my need if I can't look beyond what I believe is someone else's fault? How can we say that God's grace refused to define us by our worst moment or our greatest struggle or our greatest sin, but yet we turn around and we define people by their struggle or by their sin or by their condition? We don't wanna be those people. Those who struggle with gender are not our enemies to fight, but they're our neighbors to love. Of 6,000 trans adults who were surveyed and interviewed of 6,000, 57% had families that wouldn't speak to them, whose moms and dads and aunts and uncles and grandparents and family members had called them everything from despicable to disgusting to damned to hell without hope. 50% had been harassed at school. 65% had had some form of physical or sexual violence committed against them. 69% had experienced homelessness. These are people Jesus loves and died for. These are people I believe, you may not believe in, that's okay. You may not want me back next week, but these are people Jesus wants to fill our church with that he wants to fill churches with because God created a place where family could exist for the familyless, where there could be a spiritual hospital for those in need. Jesus wasn't pro-tax collecting, yet people who were tax collectors loved him. He stood against sin, yet sinners flocked to be around him. When you read the New Testament, you find out that Jesus is building an upside down kingdom where outcasts have their feet washed. The marginalized are welcomed and the dehumanized can begin to feel human again because they are treated with dignity and respect. The church is supposed to be a place where the truth is upheld, celebrated, proclaimed. All the while, when we fall short of that truth, we're still loved. Loved by God, loved by one another. People don't need more outrage from Christians. They need outrageous love from Christians. We can be right on the issues, as one author said, but if we get love wrong, we're just wrong. We can be right with our position, right with our opinion, but if we don't love through it, if we don't love with it, we're just wrong. I love what President Sprinkle said. He said, our truth perhaps won't ever be heard until our grace is felt. Getting angry about prevailing ideologies won't bring the people who are affected by those ideologies into the kingdom of God. It'll just build barriers, not bridges. We can do better. We must do better. And in the end, only the creator has the right to define his creation. Those who he has placed his image upon, male and female, who collectively image God, and God has spoken over your life and mine that he knows, he knows you, he knows me, he loves you, he loves me. He loves the world. And the reason we know that is he sent his son to die for the world, every single one. You remember I told you in the beginning about Leslie and Alan 
I'll close here. Leslie left the church. She fell in love with a woman named Sue. They got married. Sue had a rare disease in which contributed to a horrific death. Leslie is anybody who loves anyone. Had this unbearable pain and she needed to plan a funeral. So she was faced to reach out to a pastor once again in the town that she lived. She called a church and it happened to be the most conservative church in her town. She explained to the pastor, we're lesbians, but my wife is dead. Would you do the funeral? He didn't declare a position and he didn't give a lecture and he didn't preach a sermon. He simply said to her, I'd be honored to serve. And I hope you will allow our church to love you through this pain. The church rallied around Leslie. And for the first time in 18 years, she felt loved by Christians. And she felt loved by God and it reignited her faith. And today, Leslie is a passionate follower of Jesus. She serves in her local church. She still struggles with her dysphoria. Perhaps she always will, but she's doing her best to bring her life under the leadership of her savior and live a life that honors him. That's the power of grace and the power of truth. Alan, that pastor's son, he left the church, but he met a friend, a Christian friend who asked Alan one day, will you tell me your story? Alan told his Christian friend of his desire to be a woman, how he was attracted to men and how he had failed time and time again to follow his own convictions about his sexual ethic. Expecting to be condemned, he was loved by his friend and the grace and the love of his friend it pierced his soul. And here are the words of Alan himself. He said, if I never learned about pure undistilled grace, I would have transitioned to a female and left the church, Alan said. The thing that brought me to an acceptance of biblical masculinity was not a poignantly laid out exegetical argument against transsexuality, nor a fire and brimstone diatribe against homosexuality, but a man who gave me the space to speak about my desires openly and to let me know he and God love me none the less. And President Sprinkles puts this caveat on it. It was love, not logic that changed Alan's heart. People are rarely argued in to the kingdom of God. So let's be a people of grace and truth. Let's be a people of compassion and conviction. And let's let every person we ever meet know that even when they fall short of God's standard of truth, there is this thing called the grace of God. There is a cross that stands to prove God's love for you and for me, that we are all sinners fallen short of the glory of God, but the gift of God for every sinner who will receive it is eternal life through Christ Jesus. There is a generation of faith perhaps at stake, families who are at stake, individual lives who are at stake. We gotta get this right. We gotta get it right. Father, I pray that you'll speak to us. Speak to our hearts, speak to our minds. Let us receive the truth of what the scripture teaches us. And God, let us live in the tension of unconditional grace and uncompromised truth. God, help us to walk the way of Jesus. It's not easy. Sometimes it's misunderstood or mischaracterized. But God, we can be a people who stand upon the truth that right is right and wrong is wrong while all at the same time extending grace to 
all of those who are around us. I pray, Father, that you'll remind us that your grace is great enough to cover all of our sins. That you died for every sinner and all sin. Remind us of the good news of the gospel. Let us be bridge builders, not people who erect barriers. And I pray today we'll receive your word and live it out the best we can in Jesus' name.